Oh, love that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul in me. Stories set the tables around which we live our lives. My name is Mike Roth, and this is Story and Table, a personal and academic exploration of Christian ideologies and the systems that these ideologies sustain. Welcome to Story and Table. This is Season 1, Episode 3, A Bible Story, Part 1. I'll begin by telling a story about the Bible that is, for many Christians, especially in the United States, dogma. In other words, the Bible story that I'm about to tell is considered by many to be incontrovertibly true. It goes like this. The Bible was written by humans who were inspired by God. And because God, who is perfect, was the source of inspiration, the writings contained within the Bible are infallible and inerrant. Infallible means that the Bible is incapable of making mistakes. And inerrant means that the Bible is incapable of being wrong. Now, this podcast exists to explore the tables that Christian stories set. And so let's consider some of the implications that this particular Bible story has on the lives of people. Let's imagine for a moment that you pick up your Bible and begin to read the book of Genesis. In chapter 1, verse 7, you come across these words about the creation. So God made the dome. The Hebrew word for dome here is rekia, which refers to a beaten metal plate, a firmament, a solid vault up in the sky. However, living as a person in the 21st century, you know that there's no solid vault up in the sky, right? Like, spacecrafts filled with astronauts go straight into space without needing to break through any kind of solid material. And that is a cosmological problem in the Bible. Or, let's imagine that you're doing some research on that betrayer Judas Iscariot. You read in Matthew chapter 27 that he died by suicide, by hanging himself, to be specific. But then you read in Acts chapter 1 that Judas didn't actually die by suicide. Instead, you read in Acts that Judas fell over, burst open, and his bowels gushed out. That, you see, is a historical problem in the Bible. Or, let's imagine that you read these words in Deuteronomy chapter 20. But as for the towns of these people that the Lord your God is giving you as your inheritance, you must not let anything that breathes remain alive. You shall annihilate them. The Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, just as the Lord your God has commanded you. But then let's say you flip over to Matthew chapter 5 and read these words. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. That is a theological problem in the Bible. Which rouses this important question, what are we to do with these cosmological, historical, and theological problems? Well, if you believe in a Bible story that insists on the Bible's perfection, then you are forced to try and harmonize any of its apparent problems. And this word harmonize is really important. 
The work of harmonization is grounded in a story about a perfect Bible without error because it is the very word of God. Therefore, any and all apparent problems, whether they be cosmological or historical or theological, are not truly problems. According to this particular Bible story, either our cosmology or our history or our theological understanding is wrong. And in order to take this sacred text serious, a person living within this particular Bible story must harmonize any apparent problems. Now, using God's directive to annihilate every person in the land as an example, harmonization attempts reason to make sense of this problematic text. And the reason goes something like this. God in his sovereignty could have created these people for the sole purpose of destroying them. Therefore, God's judgment is providential. Or God knows all things, and so God knew that the people in the land would never come to salvation. Therefore, God's judgment is just. Or, God takes holiness seriously, and God did not want Israel to be tempted and to stray into idolatry and sin. Therefore, God's judgment is loving. Notice the kind of table that this Bible story sets. One feature is that people are forced to try and make sense of the Bible's problems using strange logic, which really feels more like contortion than rational thought. Like, God created people for the purpose of killing them? Or, God knew that some people wouldn't change and so God had them massacred? Or, God wanted to protect the holiness of Israel and so God slayed entire people groups? Today, very few people would justify war for these kinds of reasons. And yet, this particular Bible story sets a table around which this kind of thinking is actually used as justification for divine violence. And here's a second feature of the table that this Bible story sets, which is, check your reason at the door. For if the work of harmonization fails to make sense to those who are harmonizing, those living within this particular Bible story always have a final card to play, which is, I don't care if a particular text is violent or unreasonable. I don't care if a particular text is in conflict with cosmological or historical findings. I don't care if a particular text is contradicted by other texts in the Bible. God said it. I believe it. And herein lies a really important question. Did God say it? Many Christians today say yes. And if God did say something that is violent or misogynistic or racist or unreasonable or contradictory, should we be worshiping this God or calling this God good or loving? Again, many Christians today say yes. And the reason that they say yes is because they believe in a particular story about the Bible, which is, God, who is perfect, inspired the Bible's writings. Therefore, the writings contained within the Bible are infallible and inerrant. But here's the thing. This way of understanding the Bible is not biblical. The words infallible and inerrant do not exist within the Bible. These are extra-biblical words, extra-biblical concepts that are being applied to the Bible. Listen to these interesting words by the great C.S. Lewis. They come from his Collected Letters, Volume 3. On my view, one must apply something of the same sort of explanation to, say, the atrocities and treacheries of Joshua. I see grave danger we run by doing so. 
but the dangers of believing in a God whom we cannot but regard as evil, and then in mere terrified flattery calling him good and worshipping him, is still greater danger. The ultimate question is whether the doctrine of the goodness of God or that of the inerrancy of scriptures is to prevail when they conflict. I think the doctrine of the goodness of God is the more certain of the two. With these brief words, Lewis does that which many Christians today would call heresy. He not only questions the doctrine of inerrancy, but he denounces it because he cannot comprehend calling God good and worshiping God if God told Israel to commit genocide. And this brings me to a more ancient and historical Bible story which goes like this. The Bible, albeit sacred and inspired by God, was written by humans. I'd like to tell this more ancient and historical Bible story one more time. The Bible, albeit sacred and inspired by God, was written by humans. Now, just to alleviate any concerns that I'm making this up, let me share a few quotes. Here's one by Augustine in his book On Christian Doctrine. Anything in the divine writings that cannot be referred either to good, honest morals or to the truth of the faith, you must know is said allegorically. And here's one by Gregory the Great in his work Moralia in Job. Undoubtedly, the words of the literal text, when they do not agree with each other, show that something else is to be sought in them. And here's one by John Wesley in the works of John Wesley. If the literal sense of these scriptures is absurd and apparently contrary to reason, then we should be obliged not to interpret them according to the letter, but to look out for a looser meaning. And here's one by Karl Barth in Church Dogmatics. Not only part, but all that they say in the Bible is historically related and conditioned. And here's one more by Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his Reflections on the Bible. We must read this book of books with all human methods, but through the fragile and broken Bible, God meets us in the voice of the risen one. This is a very different Bible story, isn't it? A few key points. The Bible is the book of books, yet it is fragile and broken. Bonhoeffer. Contradictory and absurd texts should be understood as something other than literal. Augustine, Gregory the Great, Wesley. The Bible cannot escape the consciousness within which it was written. Bart. Clearly, these giants in Christianity were able to talk about the Bible in these ways because they existed within a different Bible story. For them, the Bible wasn't infallible, it was fallible. For them, the Bible wasn't inerrant, it was errant. For although it was inspired by God, it was penned by humans. And so, rather than coming across violent, misogynistic, racist, unreasonable, or contradictory passages and being forced to harmonize, a feature of the table that this Bible story sets is accommodation. Accommodation is grounded in an understanding that the Bible, albeit sacred and inspired, is written by humans. And so, recognizing the Bible's mistakes and problems, accommodations are able to be made for the spiritual and intellectual limitations of its human authors. And this, you see, changes everything. 
for example, returning to mass genocide in God's name were no longer forced into strange logic or checking reason at the door, a feature of the table that this Bible story sets includes both logic and reason. Did God tell Israel to commit genocide? Of course not. Every ancient people went to war believing that their God told them to. And when they won, they believed that their God was on their side. And when they lost, they believed that their God was against them. This is how ancient people thought. And so rather than trying to believe that God is pro-genocide and being forced to take strange steps toward defending divine violence, passages like this become helpful human warnings, such as, We humans have a tendency to use violence to get what we want and to procure our own safety. More so, we humans have a tendency to believe that God is not only okay with our violence, but commissions our violence. More so, we humans have a tendency to act violently because we think that God is for us, but against them. Now, how good and true and human is that? And this brings me to another feature of the table that this Bible story sets, which is discerning good. You see, accommodation sets us to wrestling with a passage with sensitivity to human consciousness in order to discern goodness, love, and wisdom for today. And so rather than forcing a literal interpretation at every turn because God said it, the Bible becomes an invitation to explore what humans thought. The Bible becomes an invitation to explore how humans behaved. And using all of our tools for discerning good today, we can be warned by old human biases. We can be compelled by surprising moments of kindness. We can be repulsed by bigotry, and we can be set free by human encounters with divine love. In other words, we can thoughtfully learn from this ancient and sacred wisdom that we humans call the Bible. Now, if you grew up in the first Bible story that I told, then you may be feeling a bit unsettled right now about the Bible's authority. And this is because in the first Bible story, the Bible has authority because it is God's perfect word. But as I've shared, that becomes really problematic really fast as we encounter violent, misogynistic, racist, unreasonable, and contradictory passages in the Bible. The good news is that there's a more ancient reason for the Bible's authority found in the second Bible story that I have told, which is the Bible's formation. Now, buckle up just for a moment. I'm going to give a 10,000-foot overview of the Bible's formation in order to explain its authority. The Bible was written by many different authors and editors. The creation of the books in the Bible span about 900 years. The oldest writings in the Hebrew scriptures are from the 8th century BCE. These include the folk memories from the pre-monarchic age and stories of the early kings, which were collected and edited around this time. And the newest writings in the Hebrew scriptures, such as Daniel, are from the 2nd century BCE. The oldest writings in the New Testament, such as 1 Thessalonians, are from 50 CE, and the newest writings, such as 2 Peter, are from around 120 CE. That's about a 900-year period. Think about that. These books were being written over a nearly 1,000-year period. A millennia. 
The Bible's authors therefore existed in various cultures, social mores, and stages of human consciousness. The Bible was written in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. The Bible contains different types, genres, and forms of literature. And then to top it all off, the books of the Bible became books in the Bible through a messy, overlapping, threefold process, which looked like this. First, the books were written, <laughs> of course. Uh, second, a book became sacred. That is to say, many books were written, but the books that ended up in the Bible over time became known as special books. They were elevated books, sacred books in the life of Israel and the church. And then finally, third, a book became fixed as canon. That's to say, a sacred book became a book in the Bible. Now, here's what's wild about the books that became books in the Bible. God did not bellow from heaven. These are the books of the Bible. How is that for a God voice? <laughs> and there was no council or group of leaders that ruled on canonization. All we know is that by the end of the first century CE, the books in the Hebrew scriptures had acquired an official status for Jews, which was about 200 years after the last book was written. And most scholars see the New Testament books becoming canonical in the 4th century CE, which again was about 200 years after the last book was written. Now, how is this information helpful in relation to the Bible's authority? Well, in the first story that I told, the Bible's authority rose from being God's perfect word. God said it, I believe it. But that makes me want to ask, is that authority? Because it kind of reminds me of when I was really young and my parents told me something. Their words had absolute authority. They were the parents. I was the child and I just accepted what they said. But then as I grew and entered into adolescence, when my parents told me something, I often needed more information and would sometimes ask, why? And I'll tell you what, when they responded by saying, because I said so, their words actually lost authority. You see, the word authority refers to power that influences. And as I grew, because I said so, actually lost the power to influence. And to be clear, it's not because I was rebellious. Rather, it's because I was growing. And because I was growing, authority was no longer assumed. Authority was earned. And this brings me to why I spent time telling you about how the Bible became the Bible. Ancient books written over a nearly 1,000-year period? A 200-year process in which certain books rose to prominence as sacred until eventually entire communities, Jewish and Christian, declared these are biblical? Well, that is one of the longest editorial processes in human history. And today in our ever-increasing texts, tweets, posts, articles, magazines, and books, that ancient, prolonged, and communal process stands out to me as worthy of influence. Which is to say, it bears the weight of authority. Not because God said it, so I believe it, but because God inspired it. Humans wrote it. And over a very long period of time, entire communities, Jewish and Christian, chose to esteem it. Very few books in the world have this kind of authority. 
And we get to hold this ancient, messy, and inspired book in our laps as we use all of our tools for discerning its usefulness and goodness for our lives and world today. Stories at the tables around which we live our lives. May your life be filled with good stories that set loving tables around which you are freed and inspired to flourish. Thanks for listening to Story and Table. If you find this podcast worthwhile, thought-provoking, or encouraging, will you share about it with your friends and family? And if you don't already support the work of Pearl Church, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org.